Hey guys, I'm Pete. And I'm Alex. And you're listening to the Kick Push Pivot Podcast. I'm a former Fortune 500 consultant dedicated to the idea of innovation and growth. And I used to manage marketing tours for the Rolling Stones, focused on creating one-of-a-kind customer experiences. On this podcast, we interview people faced with the decision to kickstart innovation, push through doubt, or pivot to something new. We hope you find something inspiring or encouraging as you listen. All right. Hello and welcome everybody back to the KPP podcast. We're here with another great episode. We have Gary Zellerbach on the show today. Really interesting guy. Can't wait to share a little bit about his story. And uh, of course, as always, I'm here with my co-host Pete. Say what's up, Pete. Hello, everyone. Nice to hear your smiling voices through the radio. (laughs) That's what we like to say on every podcast. Love it. All right. So as I said, we're here with Gary Zellerbach. Uh, He is a serial entrepreneur, uh, fifth generation, I believe, San Franciscan. Is that correct, Gary? That that is true. Came over in the gold rush. (laughs) All right. Bay Area boy, born and raised. I love it. Um, So like I said, serial entrepreneur. He's done a lot of really interesting things with his life, including being a rock star, uh, owning a hologram business, um, working for Sun Microsystems before they were purchased. Um, A lot of cool stuff. So why don't we start off, Gary, by introducing yourself, maybe a little bit about your background and then how you kind of got started in business. Okay, sure. Thanks, guys. My family came to California in 1849 looking for gold. And like many pioneer Jewish families, uh, they didn't find gold, but they were smart and they went into business. So we started a paper company. And that grew into Crown Zellerback, which was the second largest paper company in the United States. And that's my family background. Um, So... Family's been in California that whole time. I'm a fifth generation San Franciscan, born, raised in San Francisco, went back east to college, um, found a bunch of people who were shared my taste in music because all I really like to do is play the guitar. Um, So after college, uh, me and my buddies moved to Hollywood to become famous rock stars, (laughs) which we almost did. And... um, That's a real quick background. And then from Hollywood, I launched into other areas of my career, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think you came a little closer. I think you're being a little modest about your rock star background. Maybe share a little bit about uh, some of the cool things, some of the cool things that you were able to do in Hollywood. Um, Okay. Well, when I first got there, uh, we were all scrambling to find gigs. One of the first gigs I got was with Frankie Gay, who was Marvin Gaye's brother. And so uh, we we rehearsed at the house. Uh, unfortunately, it's the house where Marvin was shot by his father several years later. It was pretty dramatic. But I did get to meet with Marvin Gaye, and that was very cool. Uh, I next went on and I toured the United States with a singer named Parker McGee, who had written a couple of hit songs. And I played on American Bandstand, which was really cool because I got to meet Dick Clark. Very cool. uh, One of the secrets of American Bandstand, I'm not sure how secret it is, but it is all lip syncing. So as a musician, it's pretty cool. You don't have to be nervous about screwing up. You just sit there and look pretty, you know. (laughs) Um, So that was a blast. And then the last band I worked in 
had a short name of M and O, and the reason is the real name was Mikulski and Ostervein, which no one can say. And we got a big record deal with John Peters, who's a big time movie producer. He was Barbara Streisand's boyfriend at the time. We had a two deal album, a two deal record deal with Columbia Picture, Columbia Records. Uh, I played on the soundtrack of an old movie called The Eyes of Laura Mars on Columbia Pictures. Um, and this band was doing great until it was not. And for reasons I won't go into too much detail, it all went to hell. Uh, true Hollywood story. I got very bitter and I quit. And I sold some guitars that 30 years later, I hate myself for more than I can tell you because um, there sure. was so much money now. Um, but I was bitter. I didn't really play the guitar for 20 years. I gave up. I wow. left Hollywood and I moved back to my hometown in San Francisco. And that's when I got the entrepreneurial bug and started my hologram business. Okay. Wow. Excellent. Yeah. Maybe you can uh, share with us a little bit about how you started that uh, entrepreneurial lifestyle and the hologram business, kind of how that got started and uh, the idea mm -hmm. behind that. Okay. Um, when I was in college, I took an art course and I did really well in it. And the teacher loved me and said I should be an art major, which I never was, but gave me the feeling, I don't know, I had a good eye for art. I loved art. Um, but I was also a computer geek, um, which is hard to do back then when there was one computer on the entire college. Um, but I did ace my basic computer class and knew I had a good facility there. So my girlfriend at the time was from New York. She went back to New York to visit, came back and said, I went to the coolest place you've ever seen in your life. It's called the Museum of Holography. And that was in Soho in Manhattan, Southern Manhattan. And she says, you just, it'll blow your mind. You got to see these things. Well, I looked around, I was living in LA at the time and I found a place called Burton Homes, which was a little store on Sunset Strip. And that was the only hologram place in all of LA. And I went in there and sure enough, the stuff was amazing. And these guys, they were more than happy to sell me stuff. Um, so around the same time, my band fell apart. My grandfather passed away and I moved back to San Francisco and I inherited $20,000. And I said, I'm going to start a hologram business with this $20,000 because mm. holography is a beautiful intersection of art and technology. You cannot make a hologram without a laser. I mean, this is high tech stuff. Um, and this was a perfect intersection. So um, naively or not, I rented a storefront on Hate Street home of the hippies in San Francisco, yep. figuring if they were stoned enough, they would love my holograms, um, which, which they did. Um, and so in 1979, I opened a hologram business called the Holos Gallery on Haight Street in San Francisco. Um, I look back on my projections, which were completely laughable. Business was not good. Um, people loved the holograms. They truly did blow their minds, but they didn't open their wallets, okay? And mm -hmm. one of the problems was that holograms are fussy with lighting. To get a really good holographic image, you need a really good light at a specific angle, and that really dissuaded a lot of people from putting them up in their house. Um, mm -hmm. However, a lot of people came in and said, I have a store in Illinois. I have a store in Mississippi. 
I have a store in Tokyo. I want to sell these in my store. And without consciously doing it, I evolved into a wholesale business because I can tell you the retail traffic would never have sustained my business. There was not enough sales. Very simple. And if you want to be an entrepreneur in San Francisco, it's expensive. <laughs> there was nothing easy about it and nothing cheap about it. And it was really hard to make money. So I started wholesaling. I made, uh, I knew all the people in the business. It was a small business. Um, and I made deals and I said, Hey, you give me, so you got to go into all the pricing, right? So wholesale, you want to sell half a retail. So to be wholesale, I had to go to the manufacturers, get 30% below wholesale, which was a distributor discount. I understand all this now. What I did not understand at the time was that 30% margin was also not enough to have a viable business. So it was a pretty bad squeeze. And I always felt that I couldn't raise my prices because as soon as one of my customers realized I was charging more than the manufacturer, they would go around me. That's what I would do if I were them. So I always maintained the published wholesale price. I ended up selling about a million dollars a year worth of holograms, which was pretty good wow. in the mid 1980s. Not bad. Yeah. And my big two biggest customers were the Smithsonian Space and Air Museum and the science shops in science, the gift shops in science museums ate this stuff up. They were my great customers. My second largest customer was an art gallery in the Ginza in Tokyo. And the Ginza is a very fashionable shopping and art district. And they started buying holograms from me in shipping containers, $10,000 or $20,000 at a time. Wow. And that was a pretty good time for my business. Um, so that's a bit about the hologram business. I well, went from retail and then I ended up being a big wholesale guy. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Gary. My my daughter and son probably thank you because we spent a lot of time in the Air and Space Museum oh. when I lived in Washington, D.C. And they probably helped fund you a couple of generations later. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yes. Absolutely. We had, we had a well, lot of gadgets. What is the what is the one thing you learned during this this kind of moment of pivoting where you were you started out as the hologram person, but then you became a distributor? Obviously, you said you gotta pay attention as an entrepreneur and San Francisco being what San Francisco is. Alex and I live here too. We know it's an expensive place to go. But what was the big kind of like tipping point for you in that that kind of pivot? Well, as I said, I, it wasn't wholly conscious, I have to admit. I just knew the retail wasn't working. And I also found the demand for the products from people walking in through the door. Um, one of the main things I learned was I didn't know what I was doing. So <laughs> you could take that as a lesson. I mean, I was basically a hippie who played the guitar and I took $20,000 and opened a business. So one thing I learned is I didn't, I didn't educate myself enough before I started. Uh, I know so much more now than I did then, obviously. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't realize about how margins work. I didn't realize that, you know, if I had, use some spreadsheets a little more effectively and uh, modeled things, right? 
what if scenarios, I could have had a lot more insight into what kind of pricing I needed to actually sustain the business. But these are things I really didn't understand. I didn't go to business school. Um, I should have partnered up with some better um, people, more knowledgeable than myself. I mean, I do a lot of things differently if I could. I was very naive. How's that? Well, you know, it's interesting because you obviously are very creative with the musician side and obviously the ability to be in the art world, you know, um, a little bit as well. And it sounds to me like one of the big triggering events for you is just getting your hands more wrapped around the business side and seeing how things penciled out. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs come in with an idea and they, they kind of will it to, to, uh, to creation and then will it into uh, the marketplace. But I think being able to pivot like that where you realize, you know what, I need to go. I, I like this idea. It, it works to a certain degree, but I need to do it a different way. Uh, and then using kind of the business acumen you've, you've acquired through trial and error was a key moment for you. So I really, I really like, like that. I mean, I think all successful people uh, that are entrepreneurs find a way of making it work. It just depends on how you do it along the way. Keep an open mind uh, and be ready to, to move. Um, I had many lessons I learned in my manufacturing business as well. So after enough years of distributing, I had a, uh, salesman who said, I want to start a company with you. Why don't we make these things ourselves instead of giving the money to other people? And so that was the next phase of my hologram career was starting a manufacturing company. My partner was named Dan and I was Zellerback. So we took his first name, my last name, and we became the DZ company. And we made a lot of cheap stuff out of holographic foil, which is that shiny diffraction foil. And our biggest product was called the Dazer, the Laser Dazer. And that was a three-inch metal disc covered in foil with a dimple in the middle. And you put it on the table and you spun it and you had a fantastic light show. And it was perfectly balanced. It would spin for minutes and minutes um, with one spin. So this product, we made all kinds of products. We made hologram earrings. We made hologram badges. We made hologram hats. I mean, anything you could think of, but this was our product. So we ended up selling over the course of 10 years, 3 million dazers. Um, Yeah. And that was, that was the heart of our business. Now, the lesson I learned there was we were way over dependent on one product. Um, And then it got worse because we were way over dependent on one distributor for that product. And so those were hard lessons, guys. Um, After, I mean, what happens when you have a successful product? You get competition. So the beginning of the end was I probably, for many small U.S. manufacturers, China. I mean, it's an old story, right? China knocked off our product and they started wholesaling it for less than it cost us to make it. Okay. They could sell it for less than our cost of making it. And our one distributor, well, we had more distributors, but he was our bread and butter, then said, why am I buying your product when I can get it for China for half the price? So we lost our biggest customer and we lost our biggest product. And we ended up, we did not go bankrupt. Oh, another lesson, guys. If you have a bookkeeper, don't let her balance the checkbook. 
Uh, Can you see where that's going? Checks and balances. Don't get me on a dad joke here. I'm happy to pun that one for you. Okay. Well, um, she embezzled. And so the you-know-what hit the fan all at the same time. We learned she had stolen all this money from us. We lost our biggest product and our biggest distributor, and things were tough. So we sold the business. We sold the business to a company called U.S. Holographics, which was a new venture out of um, Salt Lake City. And it's a long story that I'm not going to get into. Um, But that worked for a short time. The guy who ran the company was not completely uh, legit. My business partner, Dan, and I believe in honesty. We believe in integrity. Um, and that we found out we had made a mistake. He ended up bankrupting the business. Um, I got out of it. And that was the big pivot into the computer business because my wife took one look at me and said, you're not doing the hologram business anymore. Uh, you know, <laughs> <Gotta do something. laughs> two strikes and you're out. Now, uh, one preface here that I'll try to say quickly is Back in 1982, I bought my first computer. I bought an Atari 800, um, and it cost $800 with 16K RAM, okay? Uh, And this is because I remembered being so fond of computers in college, and this was one of the first ones you could buy. Well, I bought that thing, and I was addicted immediately. And it was like, screw the hologram business. I'm playing with my computer. So over the next five years, I wrote my own accounting software for my business. Um, I programmed a lot of music into it. Um, I taught myself basic. I taught myself assembly language. I was a born geek. So by the time my wife said, get out of the hologram business, I knew I could do it computers and I knew I could make it in computers. So that was my next change. And what I did there, and I'll take a little bit of credit for being a little bit smart here, was... I didn't want to compete with programmers who had 10 or 15 years experience programming. Uh, This year was 1984 and the internet was just going wild. And someone, uh, am I in the right year? I'm not. Let's go forward. Uh, Career change. I didn't want to be a programmer, but this is when the internet was starting. And I, I misspoke when I said 84. We're in 1994 now. Mosaic browser had just come out. A friend of mine who worked at the Exploratorium in San Francisco showed me Mosaic. I'll never forget, right? The first time I saw the internet uh, graphically. And um, and I was like, bingo, this is it. I don't have to compete with computer, with programmers. I can go into the internet, which is a brand new field. There's no one to compete with me. So I went to Berkeley Extension you know, UC Berkeley Extension, and I took courses in web uh, web server maintenance and management. I took courses in Perl programming, which was the main scripting language used at that time. I took C programming. A little later, I took Java programming, and I made a new career for myself. I got a job hmm. at an ad agency called Austin Knight Advertising, and I became their webmaster for all the United States. And people asked me what I did, and I said I was a webmaster, and they had no freaking idea what that meant. (laughs) Um, So uh, from Austin Knight, I landed a job at Sun Microsystems. After three Uh years, 
And that was my real launch into the big time. I love working with computers. I still do. Austin Knight was not a place where I could grow or learn. I actually ran the computer department and I didn't know enough. Uh, at Sun, I was surrounded by brilliant people and all I could do was drink from the fire hose and learn so much. And uh, I spent 13 years there uh, at Sun Microsystems. Wow. So you were working on that computer, that Atari 800, while you had the hologram business then, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then, for and the then that's how you developed the love for computers and then yeah. took that afterwards after it died, after the hologram business went, uh, and, you know, and, you sold that. And for computer history fans, my first business computer was a K-Pro. And I don't know if you guys remember a K-Pro. It was, okay, I'm showing my age. This was an operating system called CPM, which was before DOS, okay? And K-Pro was a big box and the keyboard attached and you would unlatch the keyboard. And then there were two slots for floppy disks and no hard drive. And this is how I ran my business and how I wrote my first uh, programs. Um, so there's a little bit of computer history for you. Okay. Wow. I remember yeah, the I floppy, remember disk. floppy disk. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Now, now, that, now, we're, that, now we're catching here. At that time, there was a guy named Osborne. He was making the Osborne computer and a guy named Alan Kay. He was making the K-Pro computer. And these were some of the, and Compaq, C-O-M-P-A-Q. These were the mm -hmm. first portable, quote unquote, portable business computers before laptops and all that stuff. Okay. And so you come into Sun Microsystems. What exactly were you doing for them? And can, maybe you can kind of talk about your career with Sun. Sure. Um, when I was working at the ad agency, I got a call from a headhunter. And Sun Microsystems was looking for a technical writer. And I explained to her I'm not a technical writer, but my best friend is. And I gave her his number. And he got hired at Sun. And I said, hey, man, I got you a job. Get me a job. So um, six oh, yes. months later, he, he got me in the door. Okay. Well, and, you know, they took a little bit of chance on me because I wasn't a big co computer guy, but my buddy Bruce vouched for me and I got hired and um, I showed them that I was pretty smart and pretty good at computers. My job was manager of the Sun Developer CD program. That was my first job at Sun. At that time in 1997, we had a subscription program for a CD we would send out once a month full of developer tools, tips and tricks, all the geeky stuff. If you wanted to be a Sun developer, you needed this. We would put the latest tools on it, uh, Visual Studio, um, all these uh, programs, Solaris, patches, all the goodies. And so I did a pretty good job there. I built that program up. I doubled the subscription base, but then things started going badly after a year and it wasn't hard to figure out. It was called the internet. And as so often happens in big corporations, management doesn't always know what they're doing. Big surprise, okay? <laughs> so I knocked on my manager's door one day and I said, look, I hate to jeopardize my own job, but I got to be honest with you, the days are numbered. They don't want CDs in the mail. This is last decade's technology. They want everything delivered over the internet. Um, and so we killed the program. So I killed my own program. 
But luckily, she also managed, my manager also managed our fledgling e-commerce efforts. And so she said, okay, I can use you on the e-commerce side. You have the web experience, you have the programming experience. So I became manager of our Sun Microsystems first e-commerce store. And uh, we didn't have a lot to sell back then. Uh, we did three to 400 downloads a month at that time. And then I spent the next 10 years as the manager of the Sun Download Center. And I oversaw scaling that system from 400 downloads a month to 90 million downloads a month when I wow. left 10 years later. And I didn't leave Sun. I took a Holy new job. Holy cow. Yeah. So that was 10 90 years. 90 million. Scaling. Sure. You know why? Java. Java. Yep. Java. All the Java client downloads. People don't use Java on the client much anymore. It's a big uh, server-side technology. But when Java first came out, we had a big marketing splash. Uh, write once, run everywhere. You may have heard that. You may not. But that was our tagline. Java was the first cross-platform client where on the server side, you could write code for Unix, Apple, Microsoft, and generate one client that would run on any of these. So that why, so that's why it was called run once, write once, run anywhere. And it was very popular. And so we had to supply this download to 90 million clients. And every time there was a new version, they all came back and got it again. So in the early days, as you might imagine, the site crashed quite a bit. Um, and this was an interesting paradox, which I think anyone growing a business might face. Um, and that is the investment in infrastructure. Let's look at Sun. Sun had a software distribution system that worked perfectly well, except twice a year. And twice a year, we released a new version of Solaris, the operating system, which was over two gigabyte download, and it crashed our system every time. Okay? So, wow. guys, what do you do as a business? Do you put the money into building a system that can handle all the volume for two days a year? Or do you let it crash and save the money because you don't need it the other two days a year? Interesting sure. problem, right? Mm-hmm. So a company came along called Akamai, and they solved our problem. So kudos to Akamai. Akamai was the first content distribution network. I don't want to get too geeky. But what <laughs> they did is they put servers all around the Internet. And now by – so uh, they were a supplier to us. And what happens is when we released that first version of Solaris – Instead of everyone in India coming and crashing our system, the first person in India would download it onto Akamai server in India. And all the subsequent requests were sent back to get it from India, and our problem was solved, and the system never crashed again. And thank you, Akamai, and you can thank me for the free publicity. Um, but uh, that scaled the system. So. Ten years later, we had a pretty smooth running system. I've been doing it ten years. Um, I was a proven project manager of very difficult projects. My average average project was twelve months to a year, and so the VP of marketing came to me and said, "I got a new project for you." He had fallen in love with a Russian PhD in statistics, and this guy said, "We're going to build 
a personalization engine for Sun and or a recommendation engine. So the last two years of my career at Sun were building its first recommendation engine. This is something we take for granted now when you shop and you buy and they say, you bought this, you're going to want this. Okay. Wow. Um, well, we didn't have systems out of the box like that back then. So I got assigned to it because, frankly, the Russian scientist was a prima donna and people couldn't handle him and they couldn't stand him. And so Gary can handle it. Uh, so they gave me the tough guys. All right. So um, I took him on. I mostly whipped him into shape. We built an engine that increased our leads 50 percent in the first couple of months. Wow. Yeah. And I had measurable results like crazy from this thing. The main problem was a huge fight with our privacy officer because in order to make recommendations, frankly, you follow people around the website. Uh, you leave a trail of cookies. You see what they've been looking at. If you don't have that data, you don't know what to recommend to them. Well, that set off some huge bells in the privacy department, and we fought with them for months. Uh, and that's a trade-off. And that's a trade-off we all make between uh, privacy and benefits you get from having less privacy. We all make that's those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, kind of the common theme that I've seen, at least through this interview, uh, through your life, is that you know what people want. And that's probably a common theme for a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, and you're always driving innovation, like you were moving from the CD to Internet. Um, you were moving from the, the shop to wholesaler. You were just, you understood what people want and you kept pushing forward, even if it was, even if it was at the expense, expense of your own job. Um, but that's, that's a true innovator. And I think that's something that, um, that, that entrepreneurs can probably take from this interview is that you have to constantly keep your ear to the street, know what people want, keep pushing innovation, um, you know, regardless. No business, no customers, no business, right, Alex? Exactly. <laughs> so you got to be customer focused and companies that are not like for me, if a company's not customer focused, man, I just drop them like a hot potato. I'm very sensitive to customer service. And that's probably why they kept you around, even after you torpedoed your own job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the worst part was this engine. Um, Oh, I made up such a great acronym to it. Sun, oh, Sun Machine Learning Engine, which the acronym was SMILE. And I patted my back for months on coming up with that acronym because in tech, acronyms are everything. So two years later, SMILE was up and running. It was on the homepage of, of the Sun website. Oracle at the same time bought Sun. And what was the first thing they did? Kill the whole project. <laughs> so goodbye two years of my life guys but that's that's big tech for you um so yeah you know, i think that's probably the end of the story there i mean oracle buys sun microsystems obviously everyone i i assume everyone knows who oracle is at this point um big mega corporation so um they kind of swallow up sun microsystems and then uh from there on you just are are retired and living the dream almost um so when Sun got bought, well, they really liked me, which I really appreciate. And they looked after me and they wanted me to have a job. So they told Oracle, you need to hire this person, even though so many people were getting laid off. 
They said he knows more about the download system than anybody. You need him. They left out the fact that I hadn't worked on the download system for two years. And my two good buddies who were running it, uh, Alfred and Michael, they are the guys who ran it. So they hired all three of us. But after a few months, it became apparent they did not need me. And Oracle mm-hmm. basically gave me nothing to do. And five months later, they laid me off. So that's the official end, Alex, <laughs> of my high-tech uh. career. That was 2010. Um, I was in uh, my late 50s, and I was making a really good salary. And I looked around, I saw Facebook, the average age of an employee was 28 years old. And I saw the writing on the wall. There is a lot of age discrimination in the industry, for better or worse. Uh, And I really felt like I'll never get a job like I had that paid so well at such a great company. Um, And so I did retire, and I never looked for another job in tech. Went back to playing the guitar, guys. Much more fun, Mm. much less money. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, you don't have those guitars you sold off uh, a couple of years ago. So I've made up for it. <laughs> got, got some more. Got, got some new ones. Got 19 guitars now. Yeah. Oh, Holy wow. cow! Wow. Well, you know, always a pleasure to hear such great stories, Gary. Thanks for your time and for joining us. Of course. Um, the the one big takeaway I'm hearing from you um, in our conversation today is always keep an open mind, and I think that's the that's the key takeaway I think for me, and hopefully for some of the listeners today. And there's one thing I will say on that point. It's scary making a career change, you know? You give up, you go on to something new. But frankly, I never looked back and I never regretted it. So don't be afraid, make that change. Make the choice and keep pushing. You got it. Love it, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for being on the show. I think people are gonna really like this episode. And um, thanks everybody for listening and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at KPP Podcast. If you'd like to be on the show or know someone who would make a great guest, feel free to reach out. Hope to see you next time.